So, uh, welcome to episode, I think this is episode three of the Headphone Show, and today's guest is, of course, the one and only DMS3TV. Uh, if, uh, for anybody who doesn't know DMS, uh, why don't you give yourself a little bit of introduction here? I think most people probably know you more than they know me. (laughs) I don't even know how to introduce myself. Um, golly, uh, I'm an audio nerd who's been doing this for, uh, golly, maybe four years on YouTube and a million years before that in the industry. So (laughs) I review a bunch of stuff. I have a lot of weird opinions and, uh, now I'm chilling on here because, more audio channels, the better. I want to keep seeing this field grow, get more people into it. You're you're also a a filmmaker, right? Like you're, I mean, we were just yes. talking about some of that stuff. Um, that is my primary um, my primary living. It used to be primarily in the audio industry, and now I, over time, kind of gravitated into film. But it used to be I would work in uh, recording. I was a mixing and mastering engineer for a really long time. Right. Um, and yeah, then I started a, a company, DMS Multimedia and started making films and that's that's a very long story we can get into that that's a very <laughs> long story well it's just funny because i mean that's kind of i mean for me as well it was always the headphones and audio were a hobby but my you know like professional background i mean even before i was doing anything with film i was into headphones and stuff so mm-hmm. now that i'm doing this kind of stuff more it's like i a lot of the film uh work that I've done all the stuff that I've I've you know the portfolio and stuff that I've learned over the years is becoming more and more instrumental and valuable if I'm finding oh yeah um, absolutely well it's just interestingly enough a lot of things kind of coincide too yeah for sure terms like dynamic range and all these other things seem to apply both to audio and video you just kind of have to look at it from a different angle but it's all flat on paper and yeah things coincide in a similar way I I was actually talking to Tyler about this um uh, he's the other one on this uh, on the stream, and I don't think you guys can actually see him, but he's there. <laughs> yeah, sorry, uh, I'm here. He's with us. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I find that you know using visual representation and video and even just images as a analogy is super useful for audio stuff because I mean people are so much more visually oriented than they are for for sound. Um, right. And so it's always easier I find to like give an explanation for something or when trying to yeah, make an analogy or uh, make sense of something to use some sort of visual metaphor. And so that's why, I mean, it, to me, it's having that background in the film stuff has been super useful. I imagine it's, it is for you as well, because it's easier to oh, yeah. make those kinds of references and draw those connections. Well, it, it, I think this is also, I mean, that's one reason why I feel like a lot of legacy media um things like magazines especially for the audio industry many other industries but audio specifically yeah. are starting to kind of see their way out because it is a visual form of media but it's not nearly as readily accessible as stuff like you know youtube um, right and i think that's also part of the popularity in uh databases of frequency response graphs because i feel like that's an easy way once you can visually understand it to you know kind of see more of uh what people are talking about yeah so it's i mean you know a little bit easier than going out and always hearing everything in the world because not everybody can travel to every single audio show that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody just messaged me. I was see, saying, uh, seeing uh, Metal571 says he sees a doge. <laughs> hey, Puck. Oh. Show me your I'll turn the volume up a little bit for just... DMS. There we go. Just gonna relax back there? 
You're not the club here? You want to come here? Come say hi. Come say hi. Hey, girl. This is my angel, center of my universe. She's been around for longer than my YouTube channel, but she has, uh, a, she has a pretty fine-tuned ear. Yeah. Um, I wish I could have a dog, man. Where I am, it's uh, it's hard to have pets. Um, oh, lost you there. Yep, we're back. Oh, yeah. My camera coming and going. Yeah. All right, so I guess we might as well launch into this. I have yeah, let's I've do turned, it. I turned up DMS here a little bit. Uh, I got a bunch of questions for you, uh, <laughs> but we can just sort of talk about whatever. Uh, but the first thing I want to ask you is what is your approach to reviewing headphones so like your process for when you say like from when the moment you get it to the moment you publish the the review like what are the or the moment that you film your review let's say <laughs> okay that process has changed a lot over the years because back um you know when i worked in the studio and did all that it was easy back then because i already had an understanding of um like linear phase and frequency response and a lot of things like that uh but actually approaching how to best deliver things to an audience took a long time to get down. And also over time and making more and more things, obviously um, I would, you know, miss details here and there and get feedback on it. Like, Hey, you didn't talk about this. You didn't talk about that. Whatever. I still do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I put up a Panda review and I forgot to talk about the microphone and it was a Bluetooth headset. Um, <laughs> but that, that process has definitely changed a lot over time. And I feel like it depends a lot on the use case of something um because sometimes uh i feel like k371 is a great example of this someone will make a good product but i will go hard on it specifically because of its advertised use case right. um and try to evaluate it from that perspective so what a lot of people thought i hated the creative sorry k371 and i didn't hate it i just didn't like it for studio use but what, i thought outside of that it was great when uh when you realize that you know something's use case, the primary use case for a product when somebody would buy it is not the way that you would use it or that you don't have a use for it, how do you then approach giving an evaluation when something is just clearly not made for the way that you use headphones or whatever it ends up being? Well, the bright side of that is I use headphones for everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I literally like wear head. I I was in high school. I was headphones kid. Right. That was me. Like I, I always had like HG two hundred fives or like you know little right sorry HG two hundred ones little Sennheisers or just all kinds of things just for years and years and years like every waking second of my day there's some form of music happening. Oh DMS, um, sorry, I'm I'm told uh, you got to turn your gain up a little bit. I think we right here I'll pop it up. Here we go. Is that a little better? Holy oh, smokes! Little, too much. <laughs> Slightly right. down. Slightly down. There we go. How about that? That better? Sure. It's a very sensitive knob. <laughs> All right, guys, let, let us know how the levels are because, you know, it's uh, from multiple different sources here. So we Yeah, hopefully I'm not, like, destroying everyone's ears. Nah, just uh, you need those. Those are important. Um, gosh, I forgot where I was going with that. Oh, I, I use headphones, like, all the time, nonstop, 24-7. So there are some things that I have less of a use case for, I guess. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of something that I have less of a use case for. Right. I, mean, I guess, like, you're really easy to power closed backs. I don't use as often. Because when I'm on the go, I'm using usually something wireless. Um, but if I'm not using something wireless, I'll carry like, you know, uh, I've got the WA-11 here, or I'll carry a, an IDST black label or something like that. And those can put out enough power to drive a house. 
Um, but if there were something specific, let's say like um, the QC35 two, Right. That one was interesting because I've got it sitting around here somewhere. I thought, I have no use for this. Um, oh, and... sorry. You're, apparently you're, you're clipping again. I'm clipping again. Let's yeah. put it back down just a hair. How about yeah. that? Is that a little better? All right. Yeah, and now I'm I'm cranking you up on my end, so it should, uh, as Metal571 has told us. Perfect. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Sorry, um, sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. QC35 too. I When I first got that, I was like, I don't know how in the world to have use for this because I thought, well, I'll, you know, I just got it for airplanes. And I ended up, you know, forcing myself to use it. And found myself using it all the time because of the convenience. I just put it on my head, flip it on, and start doing dishes. Flip it on, make a phone call, whatever. Um, and I feel like a lot of that is when you don't have a specific use case for it, figure out what the normal person's going to be using it for and force yourself into their shoes and force yourself to use it in the way that they would. So I feel like with certain products or getting things in all the time, there's always lifestyle changes. Like, you know, if I am have towers or bookshelves in, or if I have wireless headphones or big giant wired ones, or if I'm working on studio monitors or whatever, I try to accommodate some lifestyle changes to make up for that difference. Um, and a lot of things that uh, are reviewed on the channel, um, and I can't say all things, but like most of the things that are reviewed on the channel are things that I purchase. Um, so sometimes things will get sent in. Um, but like I did a, I'm doing a thing on, well, I did the QC 35 too, but I'm actually talking about the AirPods pro and that pissed off a lot of people actually, <laughs> but I I'm talking about that. Cause I feel like it's an interesting and highly controversial yeah. thing. And it's not like Apple is going to send me AirPods. You know, I went out and bought, you know, a few pairs of those to try them back and forth. Um, and the first thought was, well, what use am I going to have for that? Because I'm either, you know, at the office or at home, I'm not always out and about with things in my ears, but uh, I, I quickly found like, oh, wow, this is super convenient. If I'm going grocery shopping, if I'm, you know, when I get home, it'll automatically connect to my computer and I can just start editing and I don't have to put anything on my head or, you know, whatever. In any, any case where I'm not particularly concerned with maximum sonic fidelity. So it was just kind of lifestyle changes to accommodate that. But mm -hmm. I guess on the original question, which I guess I skipped around a little bit on about process, um, lifestyle changes are a part of that, depending on what the product is. Um, trying to understand what its specific use case is as best as I can, test it in that specific use case. <clears throat> and then I don't like to go into something trying to specifically identify flaws, uh, but I'll try and use something as much as I can. And you kind of have to look for flaws to an extent because, you know, I learned my lesson on the, uh, the M1060 when that came out. I gave it a good review really fast, and then a lot of people started having problems with them. Um, and after that, it was like, okay, I need to spend more time with these things. I need to, like, you know, drop it a couple times and see if the wood cracks and <laughs> stuff like that. You kind of have to dig and poke and use sharp objects sometimes and figure out what, you know, what could be a potential problem for some people. And I've talked to other uh, other reviewers about this. They're like, why do you go so hard on this or that when it doesn't matter? I'm like, well, something that isn't a deal breaker to you or me might be a deal breaker to someone else. My example, at least recently, was the when I was just fit, did that review of the Pro IDSD mm. the IFI back, and realizing that like what I like my use case for that is not even a little bit what I think people should buy it for if they're going to buy right. it. Right. You know, re realizing that that 
you know, uh, I could get away with a much less expensive piece of equipment because I don't have, I, I plug everything into my computer and this is just where I do most of my listening. And I right. can't, but that's the problem is that I can't say, well, it's not worth the money because I'm only using it for this one little thing, right? That, mm -hmm. that it, it's only like maybe a, a quarter of the features that this thing has, right? So, right. And that thing too, like it's all about the features. And when exactly. I first got that thing in, I was using it as a headphone deck. And yeah, now 99% yeah. of the time I use it um, as a wireless deck, a Wi Fi deck for uh, two channels for speakers. Yeah. So it really, and then for that, I found it was like, wow, this is like amazing for that because I can plug in media to it, you know, like SD cards, I can run Wi-Fi. It was just phenomenal for that use case, but I didn't enjoy it as much in a desk. So yeah, same same kind of situation there. Very similar. All right, sorry, I got to, I got to, I'm realizing that there's uh, issues with the sound uh, again. Um, Endless fun, isn't it? So now they're saying my voice is really low. This is weird. <laughs> All right. All right, guys. How's this? How are we now? You just need like a, a big 32 channel mixer and just run everything. Analog. Yeah. You can't go wrong <laughs> if it's all analog. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Keep just I'll keep paying attention to this and I'll try and mess with the there levels as we go. Are those um, uh, are those Allegias on your head? The Focal Allegia? Yes. Yes. I are. have not tried those yet and I've been wanting to try them forever because I liked the Alex. Everyone says it it's is, like a closed back Alex. Yeah. It I'm is, wearing the same thing. Ooh. It is not uh, as, let's say, I, I actually think the Alex and the Clear both have a more agreeable frequency response than the Allegia. Mm. Um, like, without any kind of EQ. Because it's like when they close it off, like, it's much more mid forward. Let's say that would make sense. Um, and so the treble is a little bit more relaxed, and the bass, if you wear glasses, is lean. Mm -hmm. If you don't mm -hmm. wear glasses or they're like really thin on the sides, then uh, then it's there, right? It's it's pretty linear in the bass, but it sounds like the extended. things I'm wearing right now. These little uh, HD six XXs. Yeah. Well, no, it's not quite as rolled off as the six XXs in the bass. Ah. Like it extends like all the way down, but. If you yeah, if you wear glasses, it's a bit lean, but I really like them. They've grown on me because when I first heard them, even before I bought them, I was like, I don't know about this because it's it is a bit mid forward, and then there's like kind of like a upper mid range like four ish k recession, and then the treble is is it feels a little bit out of balance with the mid range, mm. but I find that just you know some wide Q value uh, boost by a couple dB at around you know four ish. K hertz, and then mm -hmm. if you want to add a little bit of bass energy, it it, it brings it in line with the Alex um, mm -hmm. a bit. But it's that initial experience of when I first heard, I was like, "Wow, this is this is not, you know, a closed back Focal Clear." But then I think right. about like the, the technical performance, and it's actually pretty close. Like the detail yeah. is pretty darn good. Um, it feels extremely punchy. Um, yeah. The, uh, oh, Metal says, Elegia is interesting, but I'm not sold on it for your MSRP. Mids don't really sound right. Yeah, so like that's that's kind of the issue for me is that the mids are a little bit too forward. They're a little bit um, metallic, I imagine, because that's how the Alex was. A lot of people use the word metallic to describe uh, yeah. Alex. 
yeah, yeah. A little bit to that. Uh, it's not the most natural timbre. And I think if you compare mm-hmm. it to some of the ZMF headphones, like the closebacks, you know, Atticus, Icon, that kind of stuff, I think from a timbre perspective, they probably do a bit better. But as far as mm-hmm. the technical, like, detail, speed kind of punch stuff, actually, no, maybe not Maybe not the slam. But for the other qualities, I think uh, the Allegiant might be better. Similar to how, like, if you think about the open back Otour versus Clear, that was always mm-hmm. a debate, you know, like they're both this really neutral kind of thing, somewhat neutral kind of thing. And I find the clears a little bit, a little bit more counterclockwise tilted, but that was always the question. It was like, one is the more natural sounding and the other one is the more slightly less natural, slightly more what people describe as metallic timbre. A little and more then, clinical. Yeah, a little bit. And then, uh, but see, when, when I evaluate those, when I listen to those two headphones together, I, oh, hey, Tyler's here. <laughs> they just Sorry. rearrange this there you go right on man all right. right actually why don't i just do this i yeah so i find that when even when i was evaluating the clear comparing that to the elegia i actually like the treble of the elegia better because it doesn't have that slight sharpness to the to the consonant sounds um hmm. But that's it's it's one of those things I've just become to appreciate over time. <laughs> I think right. at first I wasn't really drawn to that, and now it's I really appreciate the way that. Well, it some things they'll trouble. they'll kind of grow on you and warm up over time. Yeah, you kind of I, I guess it's that uh that brain burn in as they call it. Um, <laughs> but I mean you know you do get used to certain sounds over time. It's like uh my Magnapans, you know they are just mid range city. But after you listen to them for a few days and you go back to anything anything else it's like just super aggressive and sharp like any yeah. bookshelf speaker or tower in comparison it's you get used to that but after a while if you listen to magnapans for two or three days they you know start sounding normal it's the adjustment period the the, the brain yep. burning brain burning <laughs> that's but a very interesting part of well i guess uh, if we talk about measurements at any point that's i love talking about how those things coincide because that just adds a whole can of worms to it yeah, Ben A, you got to do a little bit of EQ there, I think, with uh, with the Allegia. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like, if I think he's right. Like, I've seen the price for that thing go really low. Like when it's on sale, I've seen some pretty crazy crazy prices. Enough where I think like that in my mind is like a closed back. Uh, yeah, Marvel at least for technical performance, and uh, and then above anything above that it would have to be maybe an atticus or you know i can't really think of anything else these days though actually have you dms tried the uh dan clark audio aeon 2 like the closed one i haven't a lot of people have mentioned it to me um i'm probably going to give them a shout whenever uh i'm up in new york yeah just because like half the time i just get lost in emails because i'm i'm setting up for axpona and all that stuff now right um so it's just like it's been absolutely crazy so i haven't reached out but i'm probably just gonna walk up and be like hey guys when i get to can jam yeah so it's it's worth listening to because it's surprisingly detailed for trouble like i was not expecting it to be like to me it's like all of these different qualities concessions made to make it portable to make it it seals really well to make it small and light and comfortable i don't really have the same expectations of headphones like that that i do have like odyssey closed backs or, or odyssey open backs right like the right. crazy lcdx and stuff like that but i was i was really impressed with the treble detail um, you know maybe not detail wise but frequency response wise so far 
I feel like Mr. Speakers, I will not Mr. Speakers, now Dan Clark Audio Speaker, I can't stop saying yeah, Mr. Yeah. Speakers. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm the same way. They made a, it's, it's hard for a lot of companies to make a closed back planar. You look at the frequency response of like the M1060C or closed back LCDs, and they always yeah. do really wild things. Yeah, and yeah. that's I got a lot of crap for giving the Ether Seaflow 2.2 a good review, but it's like, guys, this is a closed back planar that measures <laughs> a little bit weird, but it's not just like a roller coaster. Like that was kind of impressive. I, yeah, so I I feel like you're you're right on that because the other uh, I, I noticed this a lot with uh, planar magnetic IEMs. When they mm -hmm. close them off, uh, I think Metal and I were talking about this as well, but when you close off the shell there, uh, it, it completely messes with the frequency response. Like, it elevates the upper mids to a degree that it's, it's mm -hmm. just horrible. And so I feel like when doing, when closing off a planar like that, you got to deal with certain things, certain challenges that I feel like with dynamic driver headphones, you don't have to, it's not, you still have to deal with them, but like, it's it's easier to do somehow. And I right. think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the uh, Dan Clark headphones don't quite have as much punch quality to them because mm. it's it's sort of like you have to balance, in order to get the frequency response right, you have to make sure that it's properly damped on the backside so that right. it, you, know, you, you don't get the resonances and the standing waves and all this. And the downside with that is that you lose a little bit of the impact, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... It's a trade-off and a balance, and I think with the Aeon 2, they actually got pretty darn good uh, they yeah. right with that one. And it is it is interesting because, well, especially if you go back to like the Ether C Flow uh, and the 2.2 yeah. version of that specifically, because that's the one I had my hands on, that one you put in different forms of front-side dampeners in it. Obviously, the back-side dampener is set in place, but you put in different front-side dampeners. Yeah. And I, I, I know that there's no textbook resolution how we determine that but i do feel like dampeners do on front side and back side can tend to have some sort of negative effects on resolution absolutely um and in a lot of cases i feel like you have to pick between resolution and technical performance um, sorry like, like frequency response and technical performance sorry yes yeah yeah, um, yeah. and it really becomes a trade-off back and forth but if, i mean if they can hit both that would be really cool because i haven't really seen much of that either way yeah, it's uh, it's rare when that happens. I mean, I'm still waiting for the like closed back planar market or closed back planar concept to make to start getting figured out more because mm -hmm. again, like I think I mean, really Dan Clark Audio is the only one. Yes, like I know that the there are some others like there's right. even even Oppo to a certain degree right there back when they were yeah. doing it. Yeah. Well, it depends on the range you're in cuz yeah. there's, you know, cheaper stuff. Well, the uh, the Panda that everybody just reviewed. Yeah. You know? mm. Like th that was more of a focus on the amplification and than the um, fact that it was planar. See, that's the coolest part of it to me. Is that is right? The, the THX. You could not app. tell that it was running. Yeah. If it's just sitting on your head, you you could not tell. I even yeah. like would put it on uh, a rig. <clears throat> given it was a flat plate, it's not a. It's, it wasn't the best. I've got another rig now, finally, but and I'm working on some different upgrades. But um, yeah. the flat plate I just use now for measuring channel imbalance or noise floor but no matter what i did out of it i could not pick up a noise floor even with a microphone mm. like there was nothing just <laughs> dead silence which was just crazy because even uh even like the bose 700s and all those that are like you know 400 ish dollar uh yeah. bluetooth things that have been you know they've been in the bluetooth game for a long time um you turn it on you just hear yeah yeah that's what i'm time. used to yeah yeah and like I feel like that was like one of the crazy things about that. But that the, I mean the frequency response that wasn't perfect, but it was still like 
this isn't bad for you know a closed planar and the technical ability wasn't horrible it was like this is like this is getting there we're really starting to get there yeah um so i mean yeah i think that the closed planar market is kind of i think it's going to bust open in the next like couple of years i think that's going to be like one of the next big trends because you see a lot more planar iems you're seeing a lot more yeah. you know wireless stuff coming out i think closed back planar really is going to be a big thing in the next couple of years what i worry about with that is <clears throat> i mean actually i see metal metal 571 talking about this in the chat a bit but the the concern with uh planars is that just based just because of the way that the uh the transducer works Mm -hmm. you're limited a little bit with the type of excursive force that you can have for that pistonic motion for slam and for impact mm -hmm. unless you have large drivers <laughs> and double-sided magnets and then you right. start to be able to get you know those higher end odysseys and but see like i feel like I, I don't know how you would condense that into something that's more manageable that would be able to be a close back you know, almost not maybe not portable, but like something the size of an Allegia, for example. Like I don't know how you're right. able to do that, and uh, so I feel like there is still this trade-off that needs to get figured out properly. And then, in situations where they've tried it, like the LCD XC and the LCD two closed, those ones I feel like they they've ended up on the negative side because the the risk is just that it becomes so heavy <laughs> at a certain right. point. It's so challenging to use. Um, <clears throat> so once, once like, I'm looking at Dan Clark Audio again to try and, like, solve this and maybe make an Ether 2 closed that performs better than the Ether 2. I don't know. Like, something where it's this, let's say, flagship. Um, if they can close that off and not make it ridiculously heavy, then that'd be impressive. Um, but like Metal 571 was saying as well, is we need a LCD one closed for the you know lower end market. <laughs> right. Um, you I know what? I'm gonna awesome. I'm gonna share this real quick. I just realized because I can share a link to this too. I'm gonna share a link to that oh, in sure, yeah, yeah. chat. How's it going, Tyler? You still I <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm just chatting with uh, on the chat. <laughs> oh right on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was muting my line so you didn't hear my clicky click. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. How's it going, Martin? Good to see you. Um, um, but yeah, so, I, need to, well, I, need to I actually did have one point on that. The, you know, the okay, pandas, good. you should definitely try the panda. Yeah. The the magnet structure thing I think is interesting. Um, and like, to, shut me down if I'm getting into into like stupid no, territory no. here. Obviously, you know I work with a headphone company. Like that's mm -hmm. my day job. Is that a headphone company? Mm -hmm. um, and like their thing, like one of their big things was their they patented their own magnet design, which was single sided. But they make the entire magnet out of it's like one giant piece instead yeah. of just like a whole bunch of like individual um, individual magnets. And I'm I'm curious to see what that would do in that kind of environment because um, right. I've tried I, I have some here at home and I'll experiment with them like trying to put dampeners and stuff like that on the backside of them and see how they perform. But yeah, I like, would be like interested to see. Yeah, I, well. Back. I think it would be really cool. Yeah. I don't know if it'll happen, but I think it'd be really cool. But I'd be really interested to see how a different design like that would perform in that environment as opposed to a double-sided. Do you um, know if the, the... So, like, so the what you're saying is that the magnetic array is not an array, it's an entire piece. 
Yeah, they have like this thing they patented, or they and they they've talked about this before on their because they do yeah. like a YouTube show. Um, they spend like a crap ton on their magnets. Like so their magnets, they spend that, more yeah. on than the cost of most headphones. Are those? Do you know by any chance are those neodymium N fifty two magnets? Or are they N fifties? I don't know the the technical details on that. Um, because uh, I, as far as I know, Odyssey only uses. I, I could be totally wrong on this, but on even the LCD four, they're only using N fifties, and that's mm-hmm. not the strongest like grade. Like you can even get a stronger grade than that. And I, I remember I, they spent like five thousand dollars on just a handful of magnets, <laughs> which wow. is kind of insane. Which is why I feel like it's possible to get away with, um, you know, a single sided design in some cases. Yeah, um, that's I that's what I'm imagine thinking, right? what they would do if they did it double sided. I imagine that would add a lot of complexity to what they're building. But that would, I'm I'm curious to see what could come of something like that. I mean, even open back planers haven't truly been figured out like 100% yet either. I mean, it's, right. it seems like the you're always fighting that battle of single-sided and then how do you make up the performance that you lose by removing the one array and you're mm-hmm. trying to find different solutions and everybody's got different methods of doing it. It feels like, you know, that's still being pushed forward and there are gains being made in that area that I don't see as... Um, yeah, I, I don't see it, the boundaries being pushed as far with right. dynamic driver stuff. I mean, they yeah, are out there. Dynamics but... are starting to stagnate a little bit, I feel like. That's that's yeah. another reason I was like, I think planar magnets being closed is going to be a big thing in the next couple of years because yeah. that's I, I feel like that's a largely unexplored part of audio, whereas you know companies have been making dynamics in so many ways for so long. Like these headphones, these yeah. you know, Sennheisers on my head have been around for 20-something years. And haven't really yeah. changed like small revisions to the baffle and the construction but driver wise it's it's basically the same thing it was when they came out you know give or take um yeah. even stuff like you know sennheiser the revisions between the 800 the 800s and the 820 it's like we're not seeing anything particularly new here like yeah using gorilla glass and a closed back that's cool but there's not a lot of development happening and dynamics. I mean, you, I guess we are seeing biocellulose dynamics getting cheaper now, and we're seeing more uh, beryllium drivers now. Yeah, or, but it's not like crazy yeah. advancements. I, I, I'm, I'm noticing there was uh, so Focal's system for uh, the doing the whole voice coil motor structure is they reduce mobile mass by uh, removing the the former, like the this the middle cylinder, right? So they mm-hmm. get a, a better let's say a, a quicker response it's a faster mm-hmm. uh, response uh for for both the brilliant driver ones and the aluminum magnesium ones there was another company that did something similar and it was the clear audio the next next yeah yeah Maybe with an ironless magnesium one. driver yeah i feel um, like they're they're doing a similar kind of idea, idea where they're reducing mm-hmm. mobile mass they, I mean, the ironless, it's it's very similar to the formerless, right? Same idea. You yes. reduce mobile mass, you get better restorative force. And then... It's a very similar principle. And it's interesting. Yeah. They actually, um, I wanted to see that headphone developed further. Because I remember that yeah. was at the first can jam I ever went to as a prototype years ago. And every time I'd go, they'd have a different prototype. And by the time it came out, there just wasn't any buzz on it anymore. Because it had been, you know, yeah. there had been so many delays in production. Um yeah. 
but it was a it was a really interesting idea like what they were talking about with how they could get very little modal breakup and that kind of speed out of a dynamic it was like well this is we've seen this before in higher yep. priced things so it'd be yep. interesting if they could pull it off but you know yeah. it seems like the times when stuff like that does come around that's a cool idea a lot of times certain setbacks make it fail like the um the graphene headphone oh yeah that was, around. <laughs> that was just it was just horrible it was a great idea you know <laughs> yeah like on paper this makes so much sense mm-hmm. but something about its practical application didn't work out and as a result i feel like the technology is going to suffer and it's going to get a bad reputation you mean people won't uh they won't want to do it again, given how poorly this iteration did. Right. And I think that there's like, potential, right? There's a lot of potential in it. Unless, unless, you know, somebody like ZMF or Vocal or somebody like that picks it up because they do tend to, you know, sometimes dive into drivers of different materials like that. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess, I don't know if ZMF's particularly is experimental, but I mean, they do use biocellulose and beryllium, which I think is still pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it would have to be a, a relatively open-minded manufacturer at some you've, point because that'd be kind of sketchy to get into yeah you'd have to it'd be a risk um you an expensive risk you've uh heard the verite right yes uh, i had one here for a really long time what did you think i don't remember what your i, I remember um, i think i watched your review but i don't remember what the outcome was certain parts of the technical ability i feel like were impressive mm-hmm. um frequency response wise it sounded a little bit bright to me at four kilohertz interesting um depending on the pads i yeah. actually swapped out the pads and would put otor pads on it to darken it up a little bit just because i'm i love things like this like warm darker <laughs> sometimes it'll vary but um <clears throat> i i did like it quite a bit i didn't enjoy it quite as much as uh, some of their older biocellulose dynamic stuff I found the Brilliant to be more technically achieving, but a little bit less enjoyable. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I don't get as, if I look at a ZMF headphone, I'm not looking at their stuff particularly for its technical ability. I more think of when I see a ZMF headphone, I think of like, you know, opening up a big cigar box and having like right. a handcrafted piece of polished, you know, made in America wood in front of me. Um, and I liked the the grit that the biocellulose dynamic had, especially an icon. An icon had, you know, it was a little bit bright at six kilohertz, and I would throw on um, the ZMF's uh, microsuede pads. Um, mm-hmm. It would make it warm as hell, but it's just it had such a a unique sound to it. It really had a grit to it that sounded great on tubes, and it was like, you know what, I I like what they were doing here. And I, I mean, I still love what they're doing with, um, you know, Verte and the direction they're headed there. But it, I do kind of miss the slightly less impressive technicality of the biocellulose dynamic. It's just like with tubes, there are certain things like certain distortions and whatnot that can be pleasant to the listener. So this is actually, uh, you mentioned the tubes. This is the, the pendant back there, if you can see it. So I'm, I'm currently, well, I'll have a review soon, but... I've normally been like a solid state guy um, mm-hmm. and this is sort of the first, like I've had tubes and tube amps in the past, but this is the first real opportunity I've had to try a full, uh, you know, proper tube amp. Like an OTL. I don't think this, Tyler, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I don't think this is an OTL amp, right? No. It's no. a rectifier no. tube. Mm-hmm. 
yeah but i know amps and sound does make otl amps and it would be yeah. awesome to hear that as well otls but, are very fun to mess around with yeah mm-hmm. well and that's that's what like now that i've heard the verite off of this the pendant i now mm-hmm. it's it's kind of opened up a new world for me i'm like i think now i have to go down the tube rabbit hole and figure that out and uh because it, mm-hmm. i mean it's a totally different experience and uh, I really like it with the Verite. Not so much with these or some of the other headphones that I've had mm-hmm. around, but it's it's really kind of changed my perspective on the whole question of tube versus solid state. Yeah. Um, well, they change. It's like in the lower end, I yeah. say the lower end, but in the in in anything that I think is like under like the maybe fifteen hundred ish dollar range for amplification, a lot of those tubes are a little more colored and a lot of the solid states are more clinical. And as you get into the really high end, like yeah. the 2000, 5000 plus dollar amps, um, a lot of the solid state amps tend to go for a more colored sound and a lot of the tube amps tend to go for a more <laughs> clinical sound. And it's like they're switching places. Yeah. Um, I was talking to the guys about that the other day because this WA-11 is, you know, it's a solid state amp, but it's like this really warm, gooey, tubey sounding solid state amp. Interesting. Yeah, and then I've got like you know the is element that, uh, over here, and it's like the total opposite. Is that transformer coupled the uh, the Boo Audio? Um, I don't know actually the technical specifications of this thing. Actually, this this just got in here. They're sending this in the Y eight because I wanted to right. compare them side by side. But I want to have this here because the Y eight is a little bit um, loose on power. So it was kind of like this is. I know this is going to drive things a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you're uh, also talking about you know something being voltage driven versus current driven at that. Yeah. And I've got a tube tattooed on my arm, so <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, old uh, get this thing. old trio. Get... That thing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I wanted to get, get back to something that you were just talking about that mm-hmm. uh, actually Tyler brought up um, recently as well, where. You're talking about the biocellulose being the the thing that there's a certain nostalgia there for it, even though maybe or there's a certain quality to it that you appreciate, mm-hmm. even though there are other technologies in dynamic driver headphones that are technically more capable and more impressive. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me of what Tyler was saying about the uh, maybe you, you want to chime in on this one, Tyler, but the. Yeah there's a certain nostalgia and reverence for certain types of headphones and certain types of sound that make people either hold on to headphones that even or gravitate back to them even if they have something else that might be technically better and i was just wondering you know what well for either of you guys what your take is on on that kind of idea i mean i like for me i'm specifically thinking of of course the biocellulose drivers but then also stuff like what you're wearing right now the the 6xx that is that's a headphone. what i was thinking yeah it's a headphone that's really just had so much uh spot like it's mm-hmm. been in the limelight for for however long and people still go back to that headphone even though uh, they might have something that performs better uh, tyler what you you brought this up so i'll let you <laughs> go ahead with this uh yeah i was just thinking about this there's a we we're having a topic uh in the forums there about how uh, people can get attached to things and, and even if they aren't as capable as others, it will be something that they get passionate about and can get very, uh, um, well, just that passionate about it and, and will hold on to things that aren't maybe necessarily as capable as other or up things that are, you know, higher grade. So like you could say, uh, I was saying specifically, I think the six XX series, right? Like that's been out for, like you said, 20 years and it's people love them and they will hold on to them like crazy and they are very capable and they, 
does definitely deserve the passion. Um, but there's things that have come out since that are, you know, technically better oh, yeah. or sound much better. Uh, I would, I would throw in like the, the ZMFA Aeolus is like, that was my opinion of like that, the, the ex, like the perfect upgrade path. Uh, originally I was going mm-hmm. with like the Elex or like the, uh, the clears and that kind of yeah. stuff. Once I got the Aeolus, I was like, Oh, this is it. So, right. um, but then I did hold on to those for longer than I probably ever should have the six XXs anyways. Um, not because I don't really use them. You know, if I don't use them, then I try to I'll move them along uh, outside of certain things that I have <laughs> certain, but, certain value to. But there's uh, an element too of like, even if you don't use it, mm-hmm. you, you there's reasons not to sell it or there's reasons to still have it because every time you look at it, you go, oh, that reminds me of a certain type of sound or a remind it brings back a kind of yeah nostalgia for when you yeah. were using it more yeah oh, like yeah. for instance for me it's the uh i have the hd 800 with the sdr mod and that right. paired with my bottlehead crack with speedball is like every time i'm like oh i never use i haven't used it in months and i'll throw it on randomly just to be like oh i should sell it and before i sell it i want to make sure it's working i'll listen to it and next thing i know it's two hours later i'm like i can't do this <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's stuff like that that's what i've kind of meant like it's you you start to look at things like i haven't used this in forever so why am i why am i holding on to it but then it's that yeah. you put it back on and also those memories come flooding back or those sentimental values come or crack come crashing in and it's like oh this yeah. is special there's there's the sentimental value thing there's an element of that that i think's like a lot of the people who are maybe a lot of people who are watching reviews or they're watching they're specifically looking for opinions about a certain product because they're looking to buy it and they want to see if it's worth the money and the other side of things is people who will buy something or be interested in something as a matter of its aesthetics or you know it's finding some sort of other sentimental value to it where there's a reverence for the product that's not necessarily for its price to performance or the best value or anything like that and then it's just as you say i mean there's reasons to still have it on the wall i mean i'm getting into like almost like collector type stuff where you just start collecting a ton of headphones but like that's maybe that's yeah Mm -hmm. that's 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 how eventually it'll be like that for me (laughs) i i was like that i had about 80 (laughs) pairs of headphones i'm not even kidding no exaggeration i had about 80 pairs of headphones and i just cleaned house one day (laughs) <laughs> and got rid of tons of things mm-hmm. but there were so many things i sold yeah. almost all of them and there's lots <laughs> okay. of things that i look back on and i'm like damn i wish i hadn't got rid of that like the uh the audio technica r70x i still wish i had that thing um mm. certain amps uh creative arvana live was a great one but i didn't actually broke it because they're sound amazing and a bit like yeah. crap but there, i agree there's lots of things that we'll have that you know, well, there is certainly better performing things out there in the world. Like, yeah. you know, this, um, sure, the 6XX, I still think it's a great value, but there's so many things that perform better. Like, even in this room, you know, like, I've got, like, 1266 sitting right there, and I have, you know, LCDs over there, and then I've got, you know, 1990s there and T1s there, but I'm wearing 6XXs. But it's... <laughs> you There is... You do kind of, like, fall in love with certain things. Like, I daily drove these for nine years before... Uh, I ended up breaking away from them for a brief period and then got another pair. Like, yeah, yeah. Just, it, you get so familiar with it. But there's some things that different headphones do that it's easy to latch on to. Especially if, if uh, I mean, it, especially if you're known as the headphone guy and you just... <laughs> right. Constantly. <laughs> Non-stop. Well, yeah. I, w- I would have these on... I would even use these in the studio, not for mixing, of course. You don't want to mix on headphones. But it was really easy because these have such a narrow stage on them 
The best way I can put it is it sounds like your ear is exactly where the microphone is placed. So if I was working on mic placement for a guitar or monitoring someone who's in another room, you know, I'd go there and I'd get the mic set up just right and go back and put these on and just sit there and be like, no, we need to move the mic an inch to the left. (laughs) You know, there was no there's no staging to distract me from that sort of uh, (laughs) that sort of thing. And because of that, I fell in love with it and I got used to hearing all my music like that. And, you know, now I can't break away from it. I just love the lush mid-range of it but once you really really and i feel like from a reviewing perspective this is like something that was a game changer you gotta have one headphone that you just keep all the time that you just know so well because there are way more resolving things there are way more detailed things out there than the 6xx but after using it for you know nine plus years i could take it and plug it into whatever amp and it's like you can really hear the rest of your signal chain a lot more mm-hmm. you know you could take a 6xx and plug it up to a hundred dollar amp and then plug it up to a thousand dollar amp and then plug it up to a seven hundred dollar amp and hear the slight nuances between them because you get so used to a specific headphone sound well it's, it's just as metal 571 says in the chat right now he says that every reviewer should own at least one hd 6x0 <laughs> it's the benchmark it's, yeah yeah it really is. And it's affordable to almost everybody. It's funny. I'm actually just working on a Sundara review. Uh, for That's the a new, good one. So the new, the new revision, there's a stealth revision there. Oh. Um, and it's, yeah. Uh, I think that, that should be the new benchmark. It's obviously more expensive than the 660. Right. 6X, I actually, but... I made a video about that recently about Sundara was like one of my, it was my number one headphone under $500. Yeah. Um, yeah, I watched that video. And yeah. yeah, and it's the only one that I don't currently have here. And every time I think about <laughs> it, I need to buy us some dog. I just need to go on and bite the bullet and get it over with. See, I'm okay, so this is where you and I will depart on our opinion a little bit, but I really don't I'm not a fan of the DT nineteen ninety Pro for music listening, even though I see its value as a studio headphone. Right. I think well, it's, that goes to the previous point. Yeah. It I evaluated it as a studio That's, product exactly so for me the sandara is it, it occupies an even greater uh range value range because for again for just music listening right like maybe not as a studio headphone mm-hmm. although it, it probably do just fine as a studio headphone it just wouldn't be as applicable as something like a dt1990 pro right um, but uh yeah, have you heard the new revision of the Sundara? Or... Real quick before you get into the that little bit, uh, someone actually sure. mentioned it, it actually pans perfectly to that, is uh, how do you tell the difference between the new revision versus the old? Right, so I, I actually don't know if, <laughs> I don't know when this happened, but uh, so last, I, I, this is all going to be in my video review, so I'm spoiling it here for you guys, <laughs> but last summer, like in around July-ish, uh, HiFiMen sent me two units uh, of the Sundara, and I, I think it was actually by accident. And I ended up reviewing them, and I ended up measuring both of them and evaluating both of them. And they they measured the same within a certain margin of error, right, for placement, and they sounded the same. And they both had this sort of upper mid range shout and a bass roll off. And somewhere between then, and, and I still really liked it. I I still thought it was like an absolute awesome headphone, fantastic headphone for the price. But then, somewhere in between then and maybe like a month ago or whenever whenever Metal did his review, uh, they changed the pads. At least that's my... Mm. I mean, the tuning is different, but I think it's because they changed the pads. Because that's the first thing that I noticed when I 
got this new one here uh i took it out of the box and i was immediately like oh these pads don't feel anything like the ones that i reviewed before even though they look similar so they look that would be a good thing for me because i didn't like the old pads they well the it's the focus pad so it's got perforations mm-hmm. on the inside and it, okay. it all of it looks like it's the same except the front part is way thinner and hmm. the outside material feels a little bit like cheaper <laughs> uh huh. But I like the result is that it's far more comfortable, right? There's no swivel on those ones, which is a pain. Right. But it, when you put this new one on, because the pads are thinner at the front, it doesn't. The clamp doesn't ruin your, you know, upper jaw as much. Right. <laughs> and uh, so it's a lot more comfortable. And then that also evened out the frequency response, so that it's much more, let's say, linear on you know common uh, compensation targets. So. Um, yeah, in my mind, it's like, it's the new benchmark headphone for like, if, if you can spend more money than the HD6XX, the Sonara mm-hmm. is the next thing that you look at and then everything up until like, I don't know, maybe six or 700. I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit more, but right, it, it occupies a huge range there. For it's me. a pretty fantastic headphone. Comfort was yeah. my only problem I ever had with it because the inner diameter, the oh, uh, pads. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, and then the, uh, I could never get the uh, headband to extend down far enough for me because I have a monster head, which, I mean, even like these. It doesn't you can, look like it. I <laughs> know, uh, but here, I'm going to take these off for a second. Look how far these 6XXs are extended. Like, <laughs> and this like pulls up on my ears sometimes. Interesting. Um, actually, you know what? I can, I can clamp it in a little bit more. There's probably an index there. It's higher than that, and then it's just like that's as far up as I can go. There's probably an, an index for uh, like how far your how far down the side of your head your ears are. Right. And that is deter- determines the the ratio for how. I also have to wear like large hats and stuff like that. Like people are always like, oh, it doesn't look like it on camera, but they don't realize that I'm like I'm this and I'm a skinny dude, but I'm like six feet tall, and my head is you know huge. <laughs> So. There was somebody in a in a Discord. I can't remember who it is, and he's probably watching. So this will be funny. But he described his head as it was like a, I think it was like a pumpkin on a toothpick. Yeah, that's kind of how <laughs> I am. Actually, not here. I'm gonna. I have these sitting next to me. I'm gonna swap this real quick, so I can't hear you for sure. a second. But then I got a point. I'm gonna make real quick. Sure. These are coming off <laughs> my head. I'm putting these giant things on my head. Yeah. Because gosh, these look funny on camera. All yeah. right, this is going in here. All right, can you hear me? I can hear you, yep. Yeah. 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 On my head, this looks almost like a normal-sized headphone. <laughs> this is, is not the- a normal-sized headphone at all. That's the 1266 TC. Yeah, it usually looks huge on most people, and for some reason, it almost looks normal on me. I, it's different because I have <laughs> vegan pads on it, but still. Yeah, yeah. Like... <sighs> Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah, Absolutely well, that was ridiculous. one of the that was one of the issues that I had with the the headphone H E D D head audio. Yeah, I've been looking into that thing actually a lot recently. Um, not enough to have an opinion. It's uh, I well, I really liked it. I don't know, Tyler. It took you a little bit to get to get into it, right? The headphone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, initially it was uh, I had some kind of weird quirks. Like it's very like it's. it's like right here, but then it goes really far wide. Um, yeah. So coming off of the SR1A, 
it, right. it's and that's another problem. I was my brain breaking was on SR one A, so I was just like, eh, and then I put that on. And it was, it, and it's you know, my instant reaction was like, oh, it's not that, it's not that great. I don't understand what the the um, what everyone's been chatting about, I guess. Uh, but then after having the brain burn in for about a week, I'd say it was it it was really amazing how how especially when you look at the price performance. So kind of talking like um, yeah, like an, analyzing it for what it is rather than like the you know like what's use cases like how DMS is saying, um, it's, to my opinion, it's going to be a really tough one to beat in the plan R world, uh, under 2,500 bucks, if not, maybe even a little bit higher. Uh, cause it's, I mean, it's fantastic headphone. So that's interesting. Do we consider the, uh, the pleated driver in that? Do we still consider that a planar? Yeah. And that's, and that's the other thing I guess it's, it's, it's a unique technology. I'd almost consider it more along the lines of like how, yeah, SR1A is not, I wouldn't consider that player. It's Rivet, you know, like there's... Yeah. Right. The AMT, it's, uh, for those of you guys in the chat wondering, AMT, it's, the headphone uses what's called air motion transformer technology. And they did this for the tweeters in their speakers. And this was like the, it's really good for trouble resolution, essentially. Um, and what they did with, when turning it into a headphone was that they developed a this technology with, rather than having... Uh, a fold like a, imagine that the diaphragm for a planar magnetic headphone is like now folded and you get rather than a pistonic motion for rather than a pistonic motion for uh to create the air it it instead is kind of like um kind of like bellows for stoking a fire it's more like a breathing motion actually here here's a good example so it's it's like one of these right so when this closes you get really really fast air motion coming out even though it's uh this pistonic this motion here isn't what's producing the air relative to the motion here you're getting much faster air as a result of the squeezing and so that's the idea with uh amt but what they did when they put it into headphone tech is they changed the geometry in order to get the linear frequency response or something like a linear frequency response they changed the geometry for the folds so the folds are of different sizes and different uh, distances and that allows them to get much better base extension than just what they might be able to do for you know only tweeters for example mm -hmm. uh and so uh the i guess the technology in my mind that's very interesting but i still worry like because as tyler was saying this is definitely a uh, something where everybody else who's trying to release headphones at around you know that price or higher they need to watch out for and pay attention to the downside is that it's in order to do this it's got to be pretty heavy and so really um the biggest challenge is like i don't know how it would be possible to produce something like that with that type of driver technology at a lower weight right because that's always the thing that i worry right. about is you know your the weight is for even planars that are like flagship planars the weight is just it's too much and it always has been so these days when they're now figuring out okay with planars like we can we can reduce the weight we can get it smaller uh, lighter more comfortable by taking away one of the magnets or something like that um you know i don't know how that would work for something like amt so we'll right. see on that <laughs> but it is still fascinating like i think and i was also told that in order to i can't remember exactly the term for it but in order to actually produce the head that technology in headphone form they had to make the uh the air gap for the drivers way larger than they would 
than you than you would for something like a conventional like planar or dynamic driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, the air gap for I think it's where the yeah where the actual diaphragm is because um, otherwise yeah it, it, I'm sure it has something to do with the way that the air flows. Um, but in any case, I'll leave that to. <laughs> for some reason, when you said air gap, I started thinking flange distance, and my brain went to cameras. <laughs> It's yeah. what we were talking about earlier. Everything, everything, everything just kind yeah. of starts to. Actually, I'm interested that... to see where that goes because if we yeah. do still consider that a planar, then that's like what we were talking about earlier, where planar is really the next field that needs a lot of innovation. Well, the only thing that makes me that reminds me of a planar is the sound. Like I, to me, it sounds like a nanoscale planar, like mm-hmm. one of those really high end ones, and. But as far as the technology goes, I it I don't think it's anything like like a planar. Like it's the physical motion for the air that's being produced is different. It's not. I think like they were saying that, uh, and you know, take it for what you will. But they were saying that the ratio for the amount of air that gets moved to the uh, movement of the diaphragm is something mm-hmm. like four or five times what it would be if it were a standard pistonic motion for the diaphragm. And that's again because of you know something like it's this idea where it's kind of like bellows for a fire. You're you're only moving it this much, but it's producing air at a speed that's way faster. Right. Um, so, hmm. but uh, we'll In see where it goes. For that, I've seen that work well with speakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's hard though because like cases like that, even if I hear something, I try to keep my mouth shut on it until I've like spend time with something at home these days because yeah. i know that like if i say either way it's just everything is just I don't, i'm not even trying i'm not trying to like toot my horn here but i know if i say one way or another my opinion on something people are gonna be like oh dms said this is great or dms said this is terrible so i kind of have to yeah. like shut up about something until i can <laughs> is a kind of a really solid opinion yeah. it's the absolute worst <laughs> well, you could, i'm this, actually uh, sorry, someone ahead. asked Someone asked in the last one we did, um, what's the biggest disconnect between the viewer and the, like when you're producing a video for reviewers and the you know, viewers of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, one of the areas where it's like, it's a, it's a challenge because you don't want someone to take the wrong message from your video. <laughs> that's right. always the biggest thing. Cause then all that the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then that goes down the wrong, the wrong track. Well, yeah, it was, I mean, this happens to me, this happens to Zio, because we've talked about it before, too. Yeah. Because um, he said in his original video about the SHP 9500s, which I made a video talking very poorly about the SHP 9500s, but originally in his video, he said, you know, I feel dumb for owning 600s, HD600s, because these exist, and they do similar things for a lot cheaper, and everyone took that and said, Zio said that the HD600 is better, or the SHPs are better than HD600. You know, they'll take everything you say and like pump it to 11. Yeah. Rank it past that. Like, there are times I don't even remember, know a specific example, but I'll say, like, you know, one good or one bad thing about a certain product, and everyone will think that I instantly love it or hate it and ignore everything else said in the video. It's the one thing that you don't like about the thing is the is becomes now that thing's calling card or the message that everybody yep. seems to take. <laughs> and people will take that and quote you on it and forget everything else you said, and then you become associated with that quote instantaneously. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Like the like again the K three seven one just because that's a fresh one. Everyone says that I hate that thing, and I'm like, I don't hate it. I promise <laughs> I don't hate it. I gave it crap for being called a studio headphone, but it's not bad. But you know, if you watch the video, there were things where, like, I said, 
I had critiques and then I was like, but it does amazing here and it does amazing here and it does amazing here and it'd be great for someone who wants this. Yeah. But all that's gone, it's just DMS hates it. <laughs> um, I, wanted to, I wanted to switch gears here a little bit because you said something earlier that, um, you know, you were spending a lot of time in recording studios. Yeah. And maybe you mentioned this already, but are you a musician? Uh, yeah, I got a little camera back here. I so um, I guess that would start yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, when I grew, when I was growing up, my family worked in the music industry, not in recording or anything, but in live music. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad had a company where he would set up like live sound and projectors and stuff like that. So you know, like line arrays and cameras and projectors for concerts and all that stuff. So he did a lot of live sound and live video. And uh, my mom toured with uh, Reba McIntyre for a long time. Um, so I just, I grew up in a really musical household and we had, uh, you know, an old upright piano because my great, great, great something granddad, I don't know, whatever was in the 1800s, sold pianos and we kept one in the family since then. It was a 1823 Chickering upright grand. Mm-hmm. Um, Upright grandma was saying upright piano. My brain's just upside down. I haven't had coffee in a while. It's it's um, it's the old timey pianos that you see in like Western saloons. Yes, up, <laughs> upright. So you can put it yeah. right up against the wall. It doesn't take up a whole room. Yeah, that's what and we had. I was well. playing that as a, kid, a lot. You know, we'd kept it in shape, and it looked yeah. like it was new because the family had taken care of it from generation to generation. We had that and guitars, and I played in bands, and I played drums, and I played woodwinds, and just started. I learned everything I possibly could, and yeah. piano stuck the most. Um, and I, uh, I was making my own music for a really long time. It was the first career that I was really passionate about getting into, which is, I mean, I, when I look back at it and look at the numbers that I was getting of like song plays and stuff, this is back before streaming services. So it would have been like, you know, people buying songs on iTunes and whatnot. I look back at it and I'm like, oh my God, why did I stop doing that? That was getting better numbers than my YouTube. Um, (laughs) So I used to do that, and then I, you know, my friends knew. They were like, oh, this guy, he makes music. He can help us produce our stuff. So, like, kids from school, they'd come over, and we would, uh, I, you know, I saved up for a long time, for years, and got myself a USB mic, and I put it in a closet and nailed blankets to the walls. My mom got really pissed about that. Um, <laughs> and we would I record do. these guys, you know, rapping and stuff like that, and they put their stuff on SoundCloud, and I started learning to, like, you know, mix and produce. I would record things on like tape. Uh, and sometimes I would, uh, if somebody had a MacBook, they'd bring it over and I'd use like GarageBand or something. Um, I started yeah. getting outboard gear then, you know, it started like, cause people would come over and they'd give me like 20 bucks and we'd record for the day. Um, and eventually I got like, you know, a preamp for my tube uh, or like a tube preamp, sorry. And then like, you know, a little microphone. I think it was like a P120 cause I have P220 here now, similar one, but um, and it, you know, just kept getting things over time and eventually it started turning into something. And then after school, after high school, sorry, I, um, I got myself, uh, just more studio gear and it's, it just eventually turned into like a full-time thing. Um, and it kept building and kept building. And eventually, uh, I took a house and like basically gutted some rooms and turned one room into a control station and we put holes in the wall and ran <laughs> a snake into another room and into another. Yeah. Um, 
and you know set up treatment and stuff we had a room for vocals and a room for drums and guitars and just built this full-on studio out of it over time um and it it just kept going and i was i i mean i still used uh, a combination of digital tools but i was a really big analog then i didn't like using a computer if i didn't have to so i used a big uh mackie 8 bus 32 channel 8 bus mixer and would have uh three adat machines which um yeah are you familiar with adats yeah yeah so you'd have if, if you're if anybody doesn't know adats it's essentially it can record eight channels at a time um so I'd run all my sins out of the mixer into that, and I would, you know, use uh, plate reverb and tube pre's and all that stuff, and record everything analog into an ADAT set that's all synced up, and then go back later and play it back through the ADAT set back into the mixer, and I could mix it like that and apply whatever effects I needed to outboard, and then record the master on reel to reel. And I did that for like a really long time and I loved doing it, which is, I mean, what's funny is a lot of people that came through weren't even bands. It was usually acoustic artists or there was a crap ton of, as weird as it is, a crap ton of people in Nashville that were rappers, uh, which was neat because <laughs> some of my best artists I ever worked with were like these like hip hop artists who had almost no following at the time. And I was blown away. There was one guy actually. Yeah. Do you, you care if I shout out a guy on this show? No, shout name? out okay. by all means. <laughs> there is a man that I worked with. And if he sees, he's probably seen at some point. Drew Brazier is his name. Uh, I, I don't remember what he calls himself, but Drew Brazier is who he is. When he first came in, he was so bad. How do you it spell the last name there? B-R-A-S-H-E-R. Okay. He calls himself, I don't remember what his, what his like artist name is, but when he first came in, he was really bad. And he came back. And he came back and he came back. He would come back like three times a week, spend every dollar he made because he was like working, I think, delivering pizzas or something. He would come back and spend every dollar he made getting studio time. And every time he'd be like, how was that verse? What can I do to make it better? And stuff like that. And he did that for like three or four years straight. Wow. <laughs> yeah, several times a week. And he became one of the best lyricists that I'd ever heard. Really, Like some of the songs that he's made that he never put out, I'm just like, I hear them and I'm like, dude. <laughs> this should be everywhere and then you know, he's like in, under the he's like a history nut for hip-hop yes yeah. like all that stuff but like it was really impressive because uh, like you know as as time went on he, you know he started working with me when my studio was small and he kept going through all the way until it was at its peak um and i think he progressed at a skill rate at the same rate in which you know i was getting more gear and things were getting better um and a lot of you know, my technical understanding during this period, uh, especially during the growth, didn't necessarily come from uh, any particular formal educational background. But a lot of it was learning with, you know, like hands on with these artists and kind of like learning to direct them and help them uh, get better at their craft while I get better at my craft. And, you know, I had a lot of good mentors in the music industry. Um, There's some guys who owned recording studios in Nashville who I'd, you know, I'd go and sit in with the sessions. I went to Dark Horse a lot. Um, which is just a phenomenal studio. <laughs> and, you know, I'd, they'd let me sit in and I'd be like, okay, how'd you get this sound? How'd you get that? What is? The, why do you use a linear phase EQ instead of a parametric EQ and, you know, all this other stuff? And eventually it started making sense. I remember the first time I ever used a compressor in my life. I didn't know what a compressor was. Uh, and I would sit there and I would play back the, the, the track before I knew how to use a compressor. And I would move the fader up and down with their voice <laughs> to try and get it level in case it would be too loud or quiet. 
and I would do it like four or five takes in a row to get it perfect. And a guy was like, bro, you can just put one of these in your rack and turn this knob and it does it for you. And it just blew my mind. So a lot of, a lot, this, and this is way back, this is before it got really successful, but like still it was, um, interesting learning things in that fashion and kind of a non-traditional fashion. And that kind of, I guess, built the framework for my technical understanding of a lot of audio was either stuff that I learned hands-on or learned with. Um, we were, Tyler and I were talking earlier about how the, the benchmark that anchors a lot of opinions uh, mm. for when we're evaluating headphones and stuff like that. Right. Uh, it is the, you know, hearing things, at least, I don't know, maybe it's not like this for you, but for me, it's definitely hearing things either live or in those mm. environments where you would be recording them. And mm -hmm. then that is always the, I guess, the, the, the wall against which everything else is is checked um yeah is it like that for you as well like where a lot of your studio experience you would have heard uh, whether you were recording yourself or, or just being in that environment you would have heard a lot of stuff the way that it's that the recording actually happens um does that influence the way that you then see headphones does that influence them the way yes that, yeah it really does because a lot of it comes down to technique as well and this I'll, I'll bridge this connection i guess but it just from the basis when you record a lot let's say you record a lot of people who are playing guitar yeah you get used to you know what a guitar is going to sound like recorded on certain microphones what sort of microphone uh placement you need for different pickup patterns um and how you're you know if you eq it different ways the different sounds you're gonna be able to pull out of it here and there and then you start to recognize that in music and you'll, you'll be like okay this guy's clearly set up a guitar in this way but there, you know, I hear more of this than this or less of this certain sound. And it'll be things that, you know, it doesn't sound like it's placement. It doesn't sound like it's EQ or compression. So what you're hearing then, you know, is an artifact or a side effect of the equipment you're listening on. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it comes from that experience with recording vocals, with recording drums and guitars and knowing how certain things are produced. Um, and I like to go back and look at... Um, the music that I'm listening to, this is a big part of my analysis process. I forgot to mention earlier. I like to go and look and see what engineer uh, was recording any given track or an album, see who mixed it, who mastered it, uh, and try and research their style and see what information I can find out about them so I can know more about you know, how they mix things, how they produce things, what sort of equipment they're mixing on, um, what sort of techniques they use, whether they're using... Uh, algorithmic synthesis or simulation if they're using simulation reverb or if they're using actual physical plates or if they're using mic halls or you know how they're doing different things and having an exact understanding of how the music is created and where it comes from really helps to better understand where certain sounds are coming from where certain changes are coming from and how those changes are affected by the gear we're listening through whether it's the source or the actual headphone itself. Uh, that reminds me of one of the reasons why a lot of people who are into jazz music will follow the ECM recordings. Mm. All of those ECM or EMC, well, I think it's ECM. Anyways, they, it's because it's recorded and mastered in a certain way. Right. And so, I mean, not all of it is necessarily what everybody's going to like, but uh, being able to latch on or attached to a certain recording style i find i mean it, like one that you like 
uh, I find yields pretty good results as far as the quality of music. Um, mm-hmm. And but I mean, I've also encountered certain recording styles that uh, I mean, it's it's. I'm thinking of close mic recording, like when they actually when they have the mic way too close. <laughs> uh, right. There's a certain style to that that I can understand why it's appealing as well. So, um, yeah, uh, it just it just reminds me of that a little bit where it's yeah. Well, we develop preferences definitely based on that. Um, like I, there are certain jazz recordings that I really like, um, but I tend to gravitate more towards live ones for mm. critical listening. Either live yeah. ones or ones that are produced by certain people that I've heard a lot of their live uh, their live stuff. Like Cecile McLaurin Salvant is an insanely talented uh, jazz yes. singer. Yes, Just, I, yeah. Oh, I could go yeah. on and on and on. Um, but like this album, Dreams and Daggers. There's uh, this this album in particular. The last song, I think it's the last song, is recorded in a jazz club, and. I'm familiar with the microphones it was shot on. I know about, you know, how the space was treated. Um, the mixing engineer, uh, Todd Whitelock, master engineer, Mark Wilder, have done some really crazy projects in the past. And, you know, in, in a situation of an artist like this who's just big enough that you can hear really high-quality recordings of them, you can be familiar with the mixing engineer, the mastering engineer, and the place that it was recorded at, um, and how the artist, you know, tends to treat a microphone. Like, there's tons of videos online of how Cecile will um, you know, she knows how to use a mic. Like when she gets loud, she knows to yeah, like yeah, push yeah. back and she's, she has very good control over it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can directly see her mannerisms when performing live or recording, but especially performing live, it makes it a lot easier because you, I feel like there's a lot more, uh, small imperfections mm-hmm. that you can find. And if you're familiar with how these people are producing, and how the singer performs, it's a little bit more predictable, I suppose, um, how these imperfections are going to show themselves and how you can hear them and how some may be intentional. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, yeah, and there, there is something you kind of build a bias off. So for me, it's like I always like from familiar uh, production backgrounds because of that. I always get into situations where I'm listening to music from a certain recording artist that I like, and then you can tell exactly when they switch uh, engineers like like yeah. one album to the next and then suddenly it's like oh i don't like that style anymore or i like this better or something uh, yes yeah. uh actually i could go on a good example of that so the um <clears throat> i'm a big fanboy for mac miller's late work before he passed um and the album's swimming which was the last thing he released uh alive and then his most re- recent one circles which is a uh, this posthumous release that came out this year, both of which he did in collaboration with uh, John Bryan, who is just insanely talented uh, multi-instrumentalist and producer. Um, mm-hmm. And you can tell the production between those two albums was drastically different because Circles, the more recent one, while Swimming was collaboratively between, between the two of them, uh, Circles was... The, all the mixing and mastering was done in its completion by John Bryan after Mac had passed. Um, and you can tell the difference in mixing style between them as a result of this. And I mean, you know, which isn't to say anything bad about the deceased artist because they're a phenomenal musician. You can tell that John was a more seasoned mm-hmm. engineer. 
Um, I have to look into these artists because I <laughs> I see Tyler nodding over there. I'm just like, I don't know who that oh, is. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> you terrible. have title, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna just going to send you a link. Yeah, send me, send me links to this stuff because i got to check it out. This album thing. is just great. It's just a when, great album. When we're reviewing headphones, like it's like the the same test tracks, like <laughs> however many it is, right? Like, right. So, actually, that was a good segue. I was on mute. I, I was talking. When I talked, but uh, so the someone actually asked earlier in the the chat, like what um, everyone uses for their music playback, so uh, streaming versus FLAC, mm. that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, I know for me, I'm not. I don't consider myself a like a reviewer per se. Um, but I use uh, Spotify for all my pre- Spotify Premium for all my music like finding and that kind of stuff, and then uh, I use Koba's Studio for all my uh, like if I'm really wanting to listen to music and actually get into the detail and like hear it at its more best, I guess. Uh, so what where what would be uh, yours, DMS? Like, what is your is it title? Is that it or? All right. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah just, they just keep going endlessly yeah. i i this is some of i've got a creative records in the other room but i i use title anytime that i'm on the go and anytime i can i try to get um first edition cuts of vinyls and i know that vinyl is not a perfect format but it sounds and it's the experience of it from, yeah it's a far from perfect format but I just, I've been, I've been listening to records my whole life. That's what I grew up on was records. And it's just the format that I am the most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need to upgrade my record player really badly. But uh, I, I don't know. There's, it's, it's like the, or where are they? These that I took off my head earlier. It's something mm-hmm. that, you know, you just become familiar with. For a lot of critical, if I get really into critical details and I don't want to have to worry about um you know pops or cracks or little things here and there if i really just want to get right down to the bone i will use title for sure um actually that's an interesting question because so mm. i also use title but um i was reading up on apparently the title player is not actually ideal like the this not title masters or mq or any of that but like the specifically titles player is not ideal and if you use rune uh you bypass titles player uh, for 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 sound quality like apparently really? it's something yeah apparently because it's supposed to be uh what 16 bit at whatever mm-hmm. for most of the most of the material but because of titles player somebody actually tested this and it ended up being somewhere between 13 and 15 bit mm-hmm. uh and and so it wasn't actually giving you the best quality and then when you ran it through rune it would just use it would use runes player but mm-hmm. titles uh library and so you can get all the hardware too yeah that too um the one i wanted to mention though the one so like i use rune for a lot of the when i'm doing that kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. uh the one thing that i noticed with rune that really is like they need to fix this before before rune is like universally adopted or recommended uh they need to fix their exclusive mode because they have so both so if you run it in a s i o seo mode uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be exclusive, but if you run it in um, Wasapi mode, it's you have the option of making it ex- exclusive or not ex- not exclusive. You can turn it off. And the problem is when you turn off exclusive mode, you introduce resample artifacts like crazy, and it doesn't right. matter if you match it to your hardware. It doesn't matter if you get it 
perfect and you can even go and like i've i've gone on the runes forums and i've been like hey like what like what's going on here why is it producing these resample artifacts and it's like very noticeable uh yeah say yeah it's their, <coughs> their solution is no just run it in exclusive mode it's like that doesn't help you if you're in the process of listening to something and then you want to switch to a youtube video and then you want to switch to something else <laughs> from a different application it's, mm -hmm. it's just it's only if you're listening exclusively to music that rune is like great for that's the um, biggest problem that I have between when I like to use. That's why I love to use vinyl more for personal listening and digital more for analytical listening is because of quantization noise. Yeah. Um, quantization noise is something that we just never notice. But when you sit there and you mix a song for two weeks straight and are just yeah. listening to it straight in logic, it's the moment you export it, even as a lossless file, you hear quantization noise. Mm instantly because everything is being you know uh well i, I say losses but the second you put it down to 16441 you can hear that there is things are being slightly retimed um which sounds absurd i know this is like fractions of milliseconds we're talking here yeah. but it's just like taking uh speakers and having to treat your first reflections in a room to eliminate timing issues um it becomes more noticeable the more that you spend time with a particular track and are able to hear the difference side by side. But most of the time, no one's going to be sitting there listening to a track in Logic for two weeks and then hearing a final, um, mm -hmm. a final master of it. You know, you don't people don't have the opportunity to hear that. They only hear the final master. So it's, I feel like, uncommon for people to have to pick out quantization noise, which is why I feel like it's not a big problem for the general public. Because people don't have a reference point for something that doesn't have that unless they're particularly listening to vinyl. So what you're saying then is there would be a bigger difference between any recorded music and before that, the that stage, than there would be between something like 16-bit and 24-bit, for example. Yes. I Because you, yeah. you can export a track um at uh 16.44.1 and you can export it at, you know, 24.192 or whatever. Sure. Um and oftentimes in my personal experience oftentimes i don't find an audible difference between these two uh these two sample rates when i export sometimes sometimes volume or uh, other things come in and it's like you right. convince yourself that there's a bigger difference than there actually is if there if you can even tell historically people will if they hear a louder track they think that it sounds better yeah. um but realistically side by side I think 16441 is fine. Um, I don't see any problem with it. But quantization, because uh, are you familiar with what quantization specifically does? No, no, no. So when you quantize something, um, you are essentially snapping it to a grid. Uh, and the grid is very large when you're in a, um, a DAW, a digital audio workstation like Logic or something like that. So you have this, you have X amount of spaces per second that obviously notes uh, and things can fit into. Um, and the same thing works with the sample rate. But when you are exporting it to a file, you have to take all these individual portions of waves and sounds and they are averaged out. So it's like rounding up or rounding down. Like, okay, if it's right here, this is going to get rounded up and it's going yeah. to go into the next space or it's going to go back into this space. And it, Every single little bit of information in this entire piece will get slightly retimed forwards or backwards based off the averaging. And yeah. different DAWs have different averaging algorithms to put things in different places. And you can actually run through different mastering suites that will have different algorithms for quantizing things in different ways. 
but everything when it is exported to a final deliverable digital format quantized in some way given that digital formats are that's just what we're everybody's going to be listening to and is listening to i mean maybe there's a few of folks like you who are got, got you know the vinyl collections but digital f formats are the way of the future and the present uh what if i feel that digital formats currently are still in some ways a hangover from cds mm -hmm. and the quality that you got from cds to a certain extent right that was if, the standard for a long time yeah if if we could get a digital format say we just started everything from scratch and we could just magically be like okay here's what the digital format is now it is there would there be one that would be able to sound better than what we currently have and is there one that would allow us to get past that quantization issue um on a technical perspective and this this is not my endorsement of this particular but from a technical understanding dsd is the closest mm -hmm. um because it's more of a direct stream of unquantized information but the problem is is that almost all dsd is taken from a quantized file that's reconverted yes. into a stream and you know there are things like the idsd that will take that and will do dsd remastering but it's just yeah. trying to undo something that's already been done you know you yeah. can't take a piece of paper that's been slightly charred and unchar it um, unless you're yeah. taking the real-to-real -real information and directly transcribing it to DSD, which even then DSD, the file sizes are a problem. Um, the hardware compatibility is a problem. If there were, but if there was a way to more directly do that and mitigate these problems, I think that it's a good format, but it's such a complicated format that even I personally don't use it. Yeah. Because I wish... Factor. Well, that's, the, that's <laughs> just it, right? Like, I even when... when... Because I used to have a huge FLAC library back when I cared about that. <laughs> Still have it somewhere. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that was one of the things is I, I realized that I could... It, it was the convenience factor of being able to get all this stuff. And uh, that made me switch to, you know, Spotify and Tidal and, and, and everything else. Because, I, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, I can't get all of this. And, like, do you remember there, was, there used to be this wonderful website called what.cd? I don't know if you remember that. I don't actually. Where. Okay, so what.cd used to be, there's, it was taken down because it was basically like they just had tons of digital files, but they were mm. they were uh, um, high quality rips, right? It was like okay, you'd find a way to, and a lot of them actually ended up being vinyl rips and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting what what they had, and they had this huge catalog of stuff, and uh, I remember discovering it and being like oh this is awesome and then it 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 got taken down right it got shut down and when it when i went away all of my habits changed it was like right. i can't i no longer have access to this crazy library they had stuff that you couldn't find on Tidal or spotify and i just had to be like well i guess i just can't can't listen anymore and i can't find the stuff that i want and um but part of me always wished that there could be a Spotify or Tidal or even something like Rune where you could just have access to the highest quality files or even the vinyl rips or anything that you would want just like that and I feel that they still haven't really gotten there because they're still squabbling over who has the rights to whatever for streaming and whatnot so I'm, I, I'm still looking for that one day <laughs> so to make it vinyl rips this yeah. is so vinyl rips to me 
no, there's a problem with them. There's a big problem. I completely agree. I feel it completely de- defeats the purpose of listening to vinyl in the first place. It does just... because vinyl has flaws, and you're mixing the flaws of vinyl yeah. with the flaws of digital, and I exactly. feel like it's just creating this even. It, it's the flaws of both formats put together into the worst possible combination. Yeah, I, I that's when people agree. are like, "But this is." You should. My library is only vinyl rips, and it's like, that's fine well, if you enjoy it. You know, that's cool. But you have to have really good gear to do it proper. I mean, and it's expensive gear to do it proper, right? To do it exactly. Like, it I, really I just, is. I felt like you would, if you were doing it, you would inevitably end up with the imperfections. That, yeah, it just to me it was like the most counterintuitive. Like, why would you do something like this? Mm-hmm. Because you, it's kind of like it would be like running a tube amplifier through through solid state right like making a perfect transparent version or a perfect transparent chain within a tube amplifier <laughs> right it just it, it would defeat the purpose of it well transparency there's an interesting bit i'm gonna take these off my head because i sure giant yeah. still um <laughs> i was just trying to make a point earlier oh there we go everybody i'm just gonna yeah I, I learned that point transparency is a an interesting thing because we don't have a direct standard as to what is transparent. I should be able to hear you guys again now. Um, you know, we don't know what uh, what our brain is going to do to the sound after it goes through, you know, the anatomy of our ears and deals with the different uh, gains that our different uh, our differently shaped anatomies are. Yeah. Um, so our idea of a reference standard or of a transparent sound is going to be different from person to person, but also perfect transparency might not be the best thing because I feel like real life is not perfectly transparent. I don't listen in free field. Um, no one on earth listens in free field because it doesn't exist on our planet, in our atmosphere and a perfectly clinical recording in a studio or even a recording of a live band you're listening to how it was recorded as well as how your room sounds. Yeah. Um, so there's always going to, there's always something altering it in one way, shape or form. It just depends on if you like the alterations or not. That's when things get more subjective versus objective because objectively there's a lot of things that are high end and sound amazing, but are not technically high fidelity based off our understanding of what that means. I'm, I'm able to ISO a, right here. That's here a good, go. brighten it up this, some description uh it reminds me tyler and i again we were talking about this even just a couple days ago mm-hmm. uh just once again drawing the analogy to the visual space uh where are you familiar with the concept of bump mapping for textures in video games uh a little bit vaguely so and you guys in the chat probably know more about this than i do but uh there uh but basically the idea is you have a two-dimensional texture that through this technology called bump mapping, it you make it look like it's three-dimensional. And technically, it's not perfectly transparent because the texture is just two-dimensional. Um, but because of this additional enhancement, it it, it, it increases the sense of, of realism and immersion. And Tyler and I were just talking the other day about this, where, I mean, that that's kind of like the parallel I like to draw with something like a tube amplifier. Mm-hmm. Where it introduces this, uh, again, people like to use the term imperfections, but it it introduces this sort of holographic 3D quality that maybe technically isn't as, you know, quote unquote transparent, mm-hmm. um, but it enhances the experience or there's a, there's a, 
a chance, depending on the rest of the chain and whatever headphones you have and the rest of the system, that it can enhance the experience. I think my um, camera just died or something. Oh, well, we still have the volume or the audio, so. Battery, battery exhausted. Oh, uh, well, there's the problem. Um, it's well, it's too tired. Yeah, you know what? One second. I'm going to grab another battery just real quick. Let me set my headphones sure. down. So, Tyler, you, like, I'll let you run with that for, for a bit. Yeah. The, uh, and that's, I'm, I'm not as uh, um, versed as you or DMS as far as, like, the technical uh, realm. But uh, for me, like, when I listen to um, headphones, like, so, for instance, if I throw on my Verites or, or the Illus and I use them on a solid state versus, say, I throw them on the tube amps um, or one of them or the pendant like you have right now, mm -hmm. uh, it just felt like there was uh, uh, more... more um, like weight or, or more it seemed like there's more between the lines if that makes sense like so like there is it seemed like there's just a lot more like just life to the sound everything it just it just brought everything up more um or <laughs> it took it to 11 i guess uh but uh and that's my opinion of it like so if for me it just seems like when you have that like with the tube specifically it seems to do that where it gives you that extra um like almost that that it, it highlights the stuff that's happening in between the lines where it just gives it more life to the sound. Mm -hmm. All I, right. I, I think always, I'm back. You're back. Yeah. I, yeah. I find it in the, I notice it more in the lower frequencies, like mm -hmm. the, um, like the, let's say 100 to 200 Hertz. Like I yeah. feel like I notice, so again, instruments that occupy those spaces and even below like uh, upright double bass and stuff like that. I, I feel that I can, hear more body to them when i listen through something like the pendant compared to the fonitor x mm -hmm. and like the fonitor x uh, like that's one of the that's a really nice solid state amp right but uh, like to me that i actually think i prefer the the, the verite here out of the pendant which i was saying this earlier out of just because of that extra quality that it gives it and mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why now i need to i need to figure that out a bit more <laughs> well, we can but, kinda... oh go ahead I was gonna say uh, the synergy too. You have to look at synergy of things too. I think that's a big mm -hmm. piece of, of um, how we hear things. I mean, there's the you know how the DAC to the amp to the headphone, how that synergizes together is also mm -hmm. something that a lot of people don't really take into account. Like you could have the most neutral uh, uh, amp in the world, but if you have another super neutral bright, like let's say if you put like the, uh, I'm not like I said, I'm not the most technical person, but like the DT 1990s or the 880s or whatnot. Uh, known for or even the hg 800 is known for very bright headphone right and you throw them onto like the thx any of the thx uh, solid states it's going to be a, a very bright experience you know so i think that's mm -hmm. to you're take getting all the account. brightness yeah like, you're <laughs> every gonna be... single bit of it yeah <laughs> you know, so i mean that's uh, it's, so somebody's gonna be like oh this could be garbage they make oh it's so bright it hurts my ears it's piercing but then it's like well why not throw it on like so when i throw my eight 800s like i mentioned earlier i throw those on the bottle head and it's like that's i can get lost you know where yeah if I throw it on like the solid states, it's, it can be like my, my monitor. And I throw it on that. It's like, it's good, but it's a little bright. Some of the, the idea behind like, I, it's, I find synergies really interesting because sometimes you have synergies like exactly that, like what you just mentioned, where you have a headphone that has a certain characteristic and then you want to pair it with something that balances out that characteristic yeah. a little mm -hmm. bit. But there's other times where you want to like, I feel like, for example, when I use a low efficiency planar and I give it a ton of current or something mm -hmm. like that, where it's almost like you're, uh, you're doubling down on certain qualities that you like. Uh, so, for example, I like one of the things I like about planars is that they're very fast, right? They're very mm -hmm. tight sounding. And I put them on an IHA six, 
And it's like, that's just even more like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I get even okay. more of that quality that I like, right? Yeah, like I would never put a planar on, on my bottle head. Well, no, no, you wouldn't want to. <laughs> but like when you throw it with all my fonditor, like the, I throw it on that and it's like, you're exactly like we just mentioned. Like it's, it's just, there's that yeah. synergy also where it's just like uh, um, chocolate on chocolate, right? Like you get the double fudge <laughs> brownie ice cream, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel that that, I know, I, I noticed that more with like the technical qualities where the te- it allows certain technical qualities to shine through a little bit more strongly. Whereas the ones where I kind of counterbalance them a lot, it, it has to do with the music that I listen to. And then also the, like the other characteristics of the rest of the gear. So like warm headphones, if I'm listening to jazz music, I won't listen to warm headphones, right? If I'm listening yeah. to uh, maybe some more, you know, upbeat music, like pop or rock or something like that, then maybe I'll, you know, use some, some warm headphones. Right. Um, just because I don't want to be doubling down in that situation for tonality, mm-hmm. right? And and making the s- sounds that are already warm even warmer. <laughs> yeah, there are combinations you can fire. throw together that'll really, really... You can make stuff sound pretty harsh and pretty unenjoyable with just like the right combinations of gear. And that can individually be great equipment, but they just don't work together. I've probably been listening to the DT-1990 wrong all this time. <laughs> hey, you never know. Oh, the, the 1990 is an the Bayers in general interesting tuning. The reason that I particularly liked the 1990 as a studio headphone, and I like bright things generally as studio headphones, this being the one exception because I feel like this is a reference for mic placement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like bright studio headphones for studio use because you are forced. It's just like the you know, you know the Yamaha NS10. No, I don't. You look in any studio and you will see a pair of Yamaha NS10s in there somewhere. And the reason is, is because that thing is the worst speaker on the entire planet. And if you can make it sound good on that, your mix is going to sound good on anything. And I think a DT-1990 is a very capable headphone. But if you can make your mix sound good on something bright, you know, it's going to show you the flaws. It's going to show you those details. It's funny. I didn't actually find the DT-1990 to be like super bright i just found it to be that one spot <laughs> that, that one, one 8.5 like the the bayer peak right there 8. the rest of the tonality, is a thought... very very difficult region though yeah. when, like just in mixing um it's a region that it's very easy to let that region get out of control and i kind of appreciate that because it forces you to keep it tame absolutely absolutely and I, that's why i say like you know even when i reviewed the dt1990 which was not a favorable one I said specifically for studio use for that reason. You know, you mm-hmm. want to be able to hear that frequency range specifically so that you right. can make it sound good on all the rest of the equipment that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's, that's what they're going for. Yeah, well, that's also why, like, because I, st- I do still appreciate, like, I, I primarily like the studio use, but I do like it for a listening case specifically mm-hmm. because when I feel like when I'm using it, um, I'm like, you know, okay, this is almost definitively what an engineer at some point of the chain was hearing. And right. it's kind of like getting to walk in their shoes through uh, through an album. So you can really listen to it and maybe not definitively, but more definitively say like, okay, you know, at some point they were using something that probably adheres pretty well to diffuse field and it's going to sound reasonably similar to this in the treble. So what I'm hearing is probably similar to what the engineer was hearing. When you say diffuse field, which one do you mean? Um, I feel like H&M is a bit more of a generally accepted diffuse field for studio use, but yeah. God knows there's so many variations now that it's getting to be a pain. 
But I, I mean, so like we, we should probably talk about the target, like frequency response curves, because like I know you have some yes. interesting thoughts there. But like to me, I'm I remember like for the longest time, there's like consumer headphones that were bass monsters, and it, yeah. you know you, you see it now. You walk into any store and look at headphones, and it's always you know extra bass. And then you listen to audiophile headphones, and they were all what I would consider the H and M diffuse field or something like that. Right. right? You'd get maybe uh, everything from Grados to even the HD eight hundred, the which wasn't technically H and M, but it was brighter in that sense. Um, and and so now, even when I think about like, there's this sort of like ingrained idea that headphones, you know, real audiophile headphones should be this kind of diffuse field sound even though you know the most of the stuff that i listen to these days uh, like i wouldn't want to listen to it on on that at all mm -hmm. um, and the stuff that i recommend is also like i i can understand why but i feel like it bites the bullet on like to the negative side of things on modern genres that really just don't sound that good with like they'll sound a little bit shrill uh with that kind right. of well you about. look at some of um if you go into uh, the AES site and look at some old papers that Sean Olive did, you can see there's yeah. part of what he said was that it's diffuse field doesn't exist in real life as does free field doesn't exist in yeah. real life either. And originally that one of their targets was to try and hit something between the two because diffuse field, you're not going to, no one's going to sit in a room that is made out of, you know, perfectly infinitely reflective walls on all sides. <laughs> well, and, were they, were they basing it off of like perfectly reflective on all sides or were they basing it off of just, because like part of me f remembers this this idea that it wasn't supposed to be perfectly reflective on all sides. It was just supposed to be somewhat reflective, right? As right. opposed to the dead sound of the free field. Yes, and well, sorry. Um, uh, gosh, I can't pronounce them. Um, I found I feel terrible for not being able to pronounce it, but uh, hammer hammer hammerstein hammerstein and, and Muller. <laughs> I can yeah. never pronounce it. It's just it escapes me for some reason. Yeah, um, we're we're probably saying it wrong is, anyways because those are Scandinavian names, <laughs> right? Which is already a bit outside of my wheelhouse. I, yeah. <laughs> but I believe that that is more based on a semi-realistic listening environment. Um, I know that the traditional on paper idea of just diffuse field at its conception is a perfectly reflective room in which mm. the sound reaching the listener is loud is uh, greater from the points of reflection than it is from the source. Right, um, which is the polar opposite of free field, which is where you only have sound directly from the source and have no reflection. But I feel like either of those traditional base definitions doesn't exist. Um, right, right. And even Neither then, would be I feel realistic. like a super reflective room isn't the ideal listening environment either, because obviously a, a reasonably treated room is going to sound great um, and probably better, according to most people. I feel like. Uh, but it depends on what sort of sound you're going for also because I feel like, you know, everyone always compares to live, and I like live recordings um, a lot, but live music, unless it's well-recorded, doesn't sound that good. No. Like, you go and you listen to, like, your favorite band, and at best you might hear them on a set of really good EAWs or a JBL VRX line array, which is mm -hmm. good for pro audio, but pro audio is not very hi-fi. <laughs> Right. And then you're dealing with a massive space and delays and echoes and all yeah. kinds. And it's blasting so loud you can barely uh, enunciate anything you're hearing. Um, 
And then you're also at the mercy of the live sound engineer. Live music doesn't really sound that good in most cases. So it's already kind of a flawed reference. Well, and um, even in those cases, it's not perfectly reflective. It's just it's just somewhat reflective. Right. right? And, and it'll be very larger the space. Yeah. Yeah. The larger the space and, and every single venue is different, designed differently. Older venues are designed specifically to be more reflective in, in ways to help uh, amplify sounds coming off stage. Because we didn't, you know, if, if you look at specifically, there was a um, a place at a Frisk in Nashville, which is a uh, an old church that is now used as a uh, orchestral concert hall. Same thing mm -hmm. with the Skirmahorn in Nashville. Um, they were designed architecturally in a time where loudspeakers were not a thing. So the acoustics of the building were specifically designed to amplify as much as possible positioning of the stage so when you combine that with you know loudspeakers or anything else you're getting some very strange things happening that'll be different from place to place mm -hmm. and you know you compare that to you know your big uh your big arenas and then compare that to your outdoor venues like red rocks and compare that to your small clubs that people will play in or coffee shops and everything else and it's virtually impossible to have a live base mark or a live benchmark for what something should re like reference sound like because everything is so many, different. Too many factors, yeah. So yeah. with that said, I mean, what's your take on what a target curve should look like? It's a tough one. Um, I well, let's start with the with the Sean Olive. Um, what okay. You say about yeah. I like Harman. the original intention of the Harmon target of creating mm -hmm. something between. Uh, are currently accepted uh, diffuse field and free field standards. I do not as much like for me personally, I understand the, the extreme uh, usefulness of trying to hit a large target on. I don't like the subjective additions and subtractions where they took a lot of people both trained and untrained listeners, put knobs in front of them to adjust bass and treble to try and figure out what a lot of people like if they like more bass or less bass and if you look at the Harmon target over time every year they add more and more and more bass shelf to it um not as much of a fan of that i like the idea of like i said a curve somewhere between free field and fuse field without the i guess subjective input on it but here's the problem here so, is sorry, that everything you, is you, a bit subjective sorry when you say between free field and diffuse field you mean yeah, principally, like in principle, yes. not necessarily what the curves actually ended up looking like. Yeah, I don't mean like take free field, yeah, yeah, yeah. diffuse field, and uh, yeah, average I, them. I mean, yeah, in a practical use case, the concept, something that would. I, yeah, 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 which is what the problem then is you'd have to measure, you know, hundreds of treated rooms with different types of uh, microphones and different types of speakers to really get a good baseline even to begin with. And I don't think anyone's done that. Well, with diffuse field, they didn't even base anything on preference at all. It would have been. Right, so so that's one of the reasons why you don't get the base shelf that you do with the preference curves. Yes, but, but and so so like when thinking of like what it might sound like if you had something that was in between, uh, I, part of me feels like maybe maybe a portion of the Harman frequency response gets close to that. Yes, I would agree with that. I think that in uh, a lot of the <coughs> excuse me. Um, I feel like in a lot of the mid-range, the Harmon target is like spot on. And certain yeah. parts of the highs, I feel like, are spot on. Part of it has always sounded a little bit sucked out to me in part of the highs. But that's, mm -hmm. I guess, because traditionally I've been more accustomed to diffuse field. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I think that in a lot of ways they're on the right track. I just think that obviously AKG they want to sell headphones. It's market like that's, research. That's their yeah. They they want to reach as many people as possible. And because of that, you're going to want to make something that subjectively appeals to a mass audience. And that's um, that's. Uh, so I see somebody there says a tourist frequency response is perfect. I'm I'm inclined to agree. It's it's pretty close to right <laughs> ideal for me, but yeah the the uh, the idea I'm fine with Harmon and I like what the idea of preference research research is, but my worry Brian. maybe we can get talk to Sean all at some point about this and ask him about this. But my biggest my dog's con- going crazy because I have somebody here, so I'll oh. have to I'll have to run in just a minute. Sure, sure. Um, but my biggest concern with Harmon is that. It, it is the ever encroaching base shelf that that shows up that isn't necessarily always appropriate um, right because a lot of, and, and it's it's skewed because and I feel it's skewed um, because of listener preference listener bias yeah. and so I find it particularly unpleasant honestly yeah it ends I, up being I don't a bit I'm much. not a base head like when I watch movies you know uh, I love to have big subs and this and that and that but growing up a lot you know i i used like in my car and the cars i've driven i had sound systems in it i got my bass head phase over with but i mean now (laughs) you know as much as this is probably gonna be a semi-controversial bit for me to say this but i like i like the sub bass of the hd6xx which is almost non-existent (laughs) but i can listen to it all day you know and I get so used to it. It's not there. There's no sub base on the 6XX, but I'm just, I like it. It's not fatiguing at all whatsoever. Do I think that it's uh, <laughs> accurate? No. That's an entirely a subjective yeah. take. But me particularly, you know, I feel like my, then my subjective input on a curve would negatively impact it because I would be saying, no, we need less than neutral base on things. Yeah. Um, so I I don't think that my input or anyone else's subjective input can really le- can really make an objectively perfect curve if something were to exist. Here here we we get to the the point where we get to say that the best way to have an unfatiguing headphone is to have something that has no energy at <laughs> the sound pressure level is zero and therefore right. it's not fatiguing. Just mid range. That's it. You just wear it <laughs> just, all day. Just mid. That's how yeah. old headphones were. Um, because yeah. my one of my first headphones that I really really got into for like when I was getting into hi fi quote quote was the yeah. the ESP nine, which was a closed back electrostatic headphone made by Koss in the nineteen seventies. And it was lush mid-range and nothing else. And I could listen to it all day long, any day, and never be tired of it. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. I've actually never heard of, like, sub-bass being fatiguing, unless it's, like, bass drowning out everything else. But Right. Uh, it's I don't know exactly why it is, but I, I find... Um, I find bass... And this is, this is such a strange take, I know. I find bass in a lot of cases to be more fatiguing than really sharp highs um and this is weird like i was like i didn't think this was right and i've i've i go to an audiologist audiologist every year to get checkups and make sure i'm not losing hearing or going crazy Mm -hmm. um and i can still hear fine my hearing still extends up i mean like there's no music that's going to go all the way up to like 20 kilohertz but i can still hear 20 kilohertz you know it's there but for some reason i just find low frequencies to be more fatiguing and I think this comes down to um, the biggest variable of all from person to person, which is the differences in anatomy uh, between our ears from person to person. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like it has to be something along the lines of either how we as individuals are interpreting it uh, in our brain or how our ears adding different types of gain to it. Because just like I could say um, some sort of, I could say a sentence or show you a color. I could show you a color and you could feel a certain way about it and someone else might feel a completely different way about it. This, this is, is probably a quality. No, yeah, this is this is the most interesting actually, part, I think. Right, <laughs> you know, just like that, I could play a certain song and someone might like it, and someone else, yep. or you know, show you a bright light and someone might be like, "Well, it's pretty." Someone else might be like, "Shut that off," you know. Mm -hmm. It it's 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 interpretation and in how we are trained to experience certain things, and I feel There's like a... low frequencies, high frequencies, all that is going to play into that to a certain extent. Not necessarily in terms of what is neutral, but in terms of what we perceive as neutral from person mm -hmm. to person and what is going to fatigue and affect our listening experiences different. This is a problem that many philosophers have been trying to figure out for years. Yeah. <laughs> and they, it's, it's still talked about. It's still, I've racked my brain on it endlessly. <laughs> this is, this is yeah. the cause of a lot of unrest and I've thought about making videos about it before, but yeah. I we don't know. Discussing it too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but um, like, yeah. I, exactly. uh, yeah. I'm going to have to run because I have a guest here. So I got a lot of stuff going on today. We should do this again because I feel like we could like rant about oh, this yeah. for hours and cover a lot more ground. <laughs> yeah, and thanks so much for coming on. I know it's it's like on the weekend and stuff, so it's really it's great to talk to you. And everybody, if you guys in the chat don't know who this is yet, go follow DMS. DMS3TV yeah, right? is the channel. I'm sure most yeah. people already do. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they're like who's this resolve guy I don't know. <laughs> well hopefully we'll bring you some more viewers on this because I, like I said I want to see more more channels growing in audio the yeah. more people we have covering it from more angles the more differences of opinion the more just everything here and there we can get all collectively I feel like it's going to help yeah, I agree. audio yeah, I agree. grow as a whole so I want to see more of this so if you're one of my viewers who come over to this then you know check these guys out more <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that we'll we'll talk to you again soon I'll see you at uh, CanGem in New York awesome alright I'm going to hop off here I'll see you then man Alrighty. Alrighty, All right, well. bye. Cheers. Cheers. All And that is going to do it for the stream. Whoa, Tyler is big here. That's that's great. All right, we'll see <laughs> all of you guys later. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, stay tuned for the next one. Yeah, have a good one.